This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Gitzo and their new Adventury Camera Bags. Birders and photographers know they can rely on Gitzo for exceptional tripods, heads, and accessories for cameras and spotting scopes. Their new Adventury Backpacks provide comfort and accessibility even when you're carrying a longer lens. With coated zippers, water-resistant fabric, and a built-in rain cover, Gitzo's Adventury Bags are suitable for any environment, and multi-link straps can connect larger tripods comfortably. Gitzo Adventure Bags come in two varieties based on your needs. They're available now at gitzo.us and at your nearest authorized Gitzo dealer. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and welcome to the summer. It's officially summer, at least the meteorological summer. The birding summer is the shortest season of the year as spring is arguably still going on in the far north and it won't be long now before shorebirds start hitting back south. So really you've got uh, three or four weeks of summer in the birding world so enjoy it while you can. Uh, This is always a fun time of year for me uh, because the first part of June means I get to run my two breeding bird survey routes. There's nothing particularly novel about either of them. You can probably name the 75 most common breeding birds in the Southeast United States. And from year to year, I will find between 62 and 67 of them on both of the routes. But I love the fact that there's this long history attached to them, not just mine, but all the people who counted these routes before me. And because I'm a little bit of a list keeper, and I mean that separately from what we think of as being a lister finger quotes there. Uh, I don't care too much about my ABA list. I care a little bit more about my state list, but not so much that I'm in the car as soon as something new is found. But man, I I keep lists. I I always have since I was little. You know, before birds, it was sports teams and herps of my state and national parks. And it's just the way that my mind works. It's just the way I like to keep things organized. Maybe that's why I gravitated towards birding in the first place. It certainly provides endless opportunities for that sort of thing. But Uh, I I love the BBS in part because of that list of 65 more or less common species. I I really like comparing my results with those earlier counts, you know, thinking about how things have changed over time, uh, what I see or don't see compared to what people who have come before see or don't see. Uh, And Yes, it's a list in the sense that that's how we keep track of things, but it feels like it's more than just that. Uh, Anyway, I've done one. I have another to go. Actually, by the time this podcast publishes, I will have done that one too. And then I'll throw everything in eBird. I have an Excel spreadsheet I keep track of of year to year. Uh, And then I look forward to it next year. And uh, much respect to you BBSers out there. I'm lucky that both of my routes start within 30 miles of my front door. But those of you who travel much farther are contributing to a really amazing community science initiative. I have one more announcement to make. We at the ABA have some extra books to give away, and I wrangled a couple of them for podcast listeners. You are welcome. Uh, We have signed copies of two new titles, The Peterson Guide to Bird Identification in 12 Steps by Steve N.G. Howell and Brian Sullivan, and Birds of Prey, Hawks, Eagles, Falcons, and Vultures of North America by Pete Dunn with Kevin Carlson. They are signed. I'll mention that again. And this is what you need to do. We're going to make it easy for you. You don't have to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, though. Yeah, we sure would like it if you did that. Uh, You don't have to fill out the Libsyn ad questionnaire, though the link to that is in the show notes, and we certainly love it if you did that too. But all you need to do is send me an email at podcast at aba.org. Put 
books in the subject line. I'll take all the emails and assign them a number and use a random number generator to choose the winners. We'll get those books out to you if you if you get one. So once again, that's podcast at aba.org. Put book in the subject and you will be entered to win. So that's that. On the show today, we are talking taxonomy again with Dr. Nick Block of Stonehill College and the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee. Splits, lumps, the end of Melospiza, Canada Jays. It's all coming up after the Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the very last of May in the first couple weeks of June 2018. We have two bona fide, mind-blowing birds to report this time out. I really wish we could spread this stuff out a little more, but the birds come when the birds come. First, a pelagic out of Hatteras, North Carolina at the end of May had a Tahiti petrel, ABA code five, not only a state first and a first ABA continental record, but it looks like a first for the Atlantic Ocean, which as you know, is one of our bigger oceans. Tahiti petrel breeds on several islands in the South Pacific. It's known in North America off the southwestern coast of Mexico. There are a handful of records from Hawaii. It was a bird that was sort of expected to be seen in a place like California, but was on absolutely no one's radar uh, for North Carolina. It's hard to find two places on Earth farther apart than the South Pacific and the Western Atlantic. Being honest, this this is a really bonkers record, and it's causing me to reevaluate everything I know about anything. If we have a more unexpected bird in the ABA area this year, I can't imagine what it would be. But if that wasn't enough, a few days later, a Stygian owl, the ABA area's third record and first in a couple decades, was found on a day roost in Key West, Florida. The two previous records come from South Texas. Stygian owl is a strange species with five widely disjunct subspecies. Those Texas birds, maybe bird, there's speculation that it was a long-staying single bird that was mostly hidden for two years, are from the Middle American population. There's also a Cuban population, which was almost certainly the source of this Florida bird, which may be its own species. Who knows? There's actually not a lot known about the systematics of Stygian owl. Moving on to first whistling duck records, Vermont finally got its first record of black-bellied whistling duck in Addison. We continue to see the map expand on that species in recent years. And in Nebraska, a small flock of fulvus whistling ducks were found near Lincoln for a first there. Fulvus used to be the default wandering whistling duck before that distinction was taken by black-bellied. I'm not sure I'm ready for a world where both whistling ducks are turning up all over the place. And in Kansas, a pair of bronze cowbirds were seen in Seward County for a state first. The male was reportedly displaying, so that first might be followed by a first breeding record. Though I suppose with cowbirds, it's really more of a first leaving eggs behind in another species nest record. That was a short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for the period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Another year, another trip around bird taxonomy, courtesy of the American Ornithological Society's Classification Committee. That group of bird scientists informs the field guides and lists that we birders use every day, and they are once again making those decisions presently, if they haven't made most of them already. Uh, As usual, we are leaning again on Dr. Nick Block, professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, and secretary, still secretary? Yes. Of the AVA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee to help break down some of 2018's taxonomy proposals. Uh, thanks for coming back, Nick. I think you're officially the uh, the first guest to come on three times. So 
Welcome oh, to the Three Timers three Club. Times now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me again. Sure. This year's slate of proposals sort of lacks the the sort of big, exciting, you know, continent level splits that last year's had. Thinking of things like Willet and Yellow Rump Warbler. Um, sure. There are a handful of interesting things in this year's batch, though. Um, none continent spanning. Uh, I want to start with one that has always sort of baffled me: the uh, proposed split of Mexican duck from mallard. Um, when I started birding, I remember Mexican duck being more or less considered a full species, but those those mallard-like ducks are a real mess. What exactly is going on there? A real mess is a very good way to describe <laughs> the mallard clade. Yeah, they make goals look easy sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are ducks in general that make make problems uh, uh, for taxonomists just because of kind of rampant hybridization between mm. species that often aren't even each other's closest relatives, you know. And, <laughs> Yeah. So when you're talking about a biological species concept, sometimes that gets complicated in how you handle those scenarios. And and the Mexican duck is kind of one of these weird, messy scenarios. And the proposal is kind of saying that basically you know, mallards hybridize with uh, other closely related things like model ducks. So that's very well documented. Black duck, you know, if anyone's been, um, you know, the northern, eastern kind of part of the country, often you've come across mallard black duck hybrids. You know, it's pretty well known to birders that you see those. You know, now that I'm living in Massachusetts, I see those all the time. Yet they're considered different species by the the AOS taxonomic um, committee. So what this proposal is kind of saying is that Mexican duck should just be treated the same as black ducks and model ducks that there are hybrids but they're you know considered mostly reproductively isolated so call them species um and that's my gist of the proposals They're, they're just saying treat mexican duck like the other things that hybridize with mallard like there's no reason to lump it while the others are not it's inconsistent treatment i saw it was interesting um one of the one of the comments in the proposal was that you know Mexican duck, genetically speaking, is actually closer to things like black duck than it is to mallard. I mean, if we're going by that standard. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, the genetics is kind of a mess as well because of all the hybridization and, and kind of relatively recent speciation and that they haven't been separated for a very long time. So you didn't get lots of changes built up between them that make it easy to tell them apart genetically. And yes, some some analyses show that, you know, Mexican duck is not the closest relative to mallard. It is more closely related to some of these other things that mallard also hybridizes with. Genetically, they're a mess as well, basically. And that's they are very similar to goals in that respect. There are no analyses that seem to be able to tease them apart with any, you know, strongly supported, you know, clarity or anything. They're acknowledging that, you know, they're saying that, yes, you know, clearly genetics are not, you know, they're not reciprocally monophyletic, meaning that they only share closely related genetic sequences to each other, not to mallards. Like they're saying they are mixed together, but that's no different than these other things that are treated as species. And that the hybrid zone is not very big. So it's not like they're just like this huge swath of areas in the Southwest where you have nothing but hybrids. Um, you know, it seems to be kind of a narrow area where they hybridize, which is consistent with, um, you know, treating things as different species but with, with yeah. this committee, at least. So why has why has Mexican duck been treated so differently? Is it because it is so very similar to mallard? I mean, we, you know, if we're considering Mexican duck, uh, you know, conspecific with mallard, why not black duck? Is it because black duck actually looks quite a bit different than mallard? 
Or is it inertia? <laughs> yeah, I, that I, I think both of those things probably explain it. I think the original lumping of Mexican duck back into mallard, and this is where I may, I may be wrong in some of these details, I, I think was somewhat arbitrary in that that they um, or the the, inf- the information that was based on may not have been um, very well supported and that there are kind of small sample sizes of hybrids and things like that that you know may not have been a good indication of what the big picture between the two potential species looked like and so what they're saying is that you know that that with further research and further observations from the hybrid zone area in the southwest that the original kind of conclusion that these were widely hybridizing may not have been a very good conclusion and, and, and subsequent kind of uh, research and observations. It's no different than say the, the black duck situation. Um, and in fact, if I remember correctly in the proposal, they're saying that black duck, there's more hybridization with black ducks and mallards than there is in between Mexican ducks and mallards. Well, I mean, certainly the hybrid zone is bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the hybrid zone is much bigger. But yes, there is the added aspect of of Mexican ducks, females, you know, and, uh, you know, essentially look like a female mallard and are much more difficult to tell apart than black ducks. Well, staying with waterfowl and and almost working in sort of the opposite direction, there was a proposal this year to lump the bean geese, the bean gooses, uh, taiga and tundra, which are, you know, that's going to impact birders who spent time in Alaska and certainly guides who may no longer have to differentiate between the two, which might be, you know, a load off. Uh, it seems yeah. sort of in the Thayer's Iceland vein, you know, riding a past wrong rather than any sort of real genetic dispute. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is not um, a gen- yeah, it doesn't seem to be a genetic uh, dispute. Gene- the genetics of this situation actually strongly support the lumping, in my opinion, and that the two current species, taiga and, and tundra, are are actually not monophyletic groups. They're actually mixed together. They're they form uh, the two together are monophyletic as a group, but the subspecies under them don't form kind of their own little groups. So sort of like red poles there, I guess. Um, in a way, Similar? yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's definitely some lack of uh, a monophyly in these species. And if you're going to continue calling them species, in fact, you have to end up like taking one subspecies from one of them and moving it to the other and like a, a huge mess. Genetically, it makes much more sense to lump them, I, I think. And, and morphologically, which is where I think a lot of the original split kind of was, was based on, it, it sounds like you know, and and I this is where my my understanding and and um, reading on the morphology of this is not as complete, but I think the proposal is kind of making the case that the strength of the um, original analyses that show that they are distinct morphological groups may not really be what's going on. That there may be some uh, a fair amount of overlap and maybe even some kind of clinal changes. And yeah, it's it's basically it's it's very muddy. Um, it's not something that should have been split. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case every time one of those shows up anywhere. And you know, there's you go birders go round and around and around trying to figure out which one it is. Yeah, it's it's a tough ID. And if we're trying to split hairs that aren't there. Yeah, it makes more sense to lump them. Exactly. The original split, which wasn't that long ago, that was only like 10 years yeah. ago. So, yeah. um, 
you know, was, was, was based as the proposal kind of describes it based on kind of like mostly a single paper that, um, essentially they're kind of saying may not have given the best picture of what's going on. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, in my opinion, I, I'd be surprised that they don't lump them back together, especially now that they have some genetics added to this that show they're clearly not monophyletic entities. So we didn't get, we didn't get yellow rumped warblers this time, but we did get yellow warblers. Yes. The proposal would split uh, what they call American yellow warbler, which is not mm. a great name in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. And those in in Middle America and South, um, you know, those sometimes chestnut headed, sometimes not, into tropical yellow warbler. Another yes. problematic name. We don't have temperate yellow warbler, but I digress. Yes. <laughs> yeah, part of the reason for tropical was to and American was to avoid conflict with um, the old world species that are called yellow warblers that aren't you know related <laughs> okay. yet. Those also occur in the tropics, so like tropical yellow warbler, you know. <laughs> yeah, nice. uh, if you're going to do it, make a neotropical or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That makes make some sense. Yeah. The split seems pretty straight ahead, uh, but I've, you know, I've said that about other ones. Uh, is there? There's very little overlap in breeding, is there? So I, you know, in terms of it being straight ahead, like I would feel much less confident about this one going through than I did hmm. and was wrong about the yellow warbler, the yellow rumped warblers. You know, if I seem to remember being quite confident they were going to split yellow rumped warblers. A lot of us were. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't. In this case, the yellow warbler case, I think, is actually much weaker than the yellow rumped. And if you read the proposal, the phylogeny that they show, the tree of you know of of samples that they show, and and the proposal is from a paper that had several populations of the the chestnut-headed or or golden warblers. So mangrove and golden warblers are kind of traditional common names for these things, and the northern yellow warblers. But it didn't include really great geographic sampling. So the paper, the tree that's included in the proposal shows that there's a distinct split between. Golden and mangrove is a group which is being called tropical yellow warbler and American yellow warbler, the, the northern yellow warbler. Yeah, northern yellow warbler would be a better name. Think, yes, but. and that is it is called northern yellow in some places yeah. that's used. So uh, I agree that does make more sense. <laughs> um, but so that it makes it seem pretty straightforward looking at that, that, okay, so we shouldn't split golden and mangrove from each other because they're kind of mixed together genetically. We don't have a great sense of the full picture in those two, but they're clearly different from Northern. But there's an another paper that the proposal cites from 2006 that showed much better sampling across uh, the U.S. and Canada and included several what we would call Northern yellow warblers from Arizona and, this, and other areas in the Southwest Utah. And in their paper, the mitochondrial DNA that they used in that paper, those samples from the Southwest were part of a distinct group that distinctly different from the other northern yellow warblers lumped in with golden and mangrove warblers. Hmm. That's where the picture is not that clear. I, basically, there is yet to be a paper that includes the you know the full geographic range at least not that i'm aware of maybe i missed something but as far as i know there's no paper with like the full geographic sampling of yellow warblers from everywhere and there's really no nuclear dna information that i've seen and as we talked about before that's very important you can't make taxonomic decisions based only on mitochondrial dna essentially right. gives you one gene's worth of information, which there could be all sorts of problems with. Yeah, and so-called mDNA, we talked about this last time, yeah. changes a lot faster than nuclear DNA, or tends to. 
Yeah, it can be great for telling you, you know, recent things that have split recently, like, you know, differences. But there are also weird things about, you know, maybe it's inherited weird or, or, or you know, the all sorts of little kind of microevolutionary processes that can that can cause problems. Sort of like a like a back of the napkin, you know, look at species yeah. concepts. Yeah. Yes. And usually, usually it's right. Usually it reflects the same thing that nuclear DNA does, but not always. So you not can't always. use it as your only line of evidence to make strongly supported taxonomic decisions. And in this case, I, I mean maybe I'm I've missed it, but I've not seen anything that uses nuclear DNA to look at this issue of yellow warblers. Um, and so when you have populations of what the proposal is saying should be called American yellow warbler in the Southwest, that lump mitochondrially with what is, they're saying should be tropical yellow warbler, now you've got a clear conflict here. Like, a, you know, that needs to be clarified. Needs more info, yeah. Before any splitting happens. So this is why I think, you know, there are some papers that show there's a clear difference. There are clear genetic groups. But where you really draw the lines, which populations belong to which groups, is, in my opinion, still not fully clarified. And I think this is just a problem of a very widespread species complex that, you know, it takes a lot of work to get all of those samples in one paper. And I honestly, you know, big picture, I honestly would be surprised if this split goes through. Hmm. Well, those of us who have seen a female type yellow warblers in middle America, uh, thank you for that <laughs> without yeah. identifying them too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, you know, clearly there's some major differences, you know, morphologically, particularly among the males. And I would anticipate that there will be a, that there will be a split of some kind somewhere down the line in this group. Um, but, you know, at the moment, I, I think it's not clear what it should be. Yeah. We have a couple seabird proposals this time. Um, both, I believe, are already accepted by several old world authorities, one that yes. splits storm petrels at the family level and another that splits the uh, nominate subspecies of Cori shearwater into Scopoli shearwater or Scopoli shearwater. Not clear on how that's pronounced. <laughs> I mean, I'd say seabird taxonomy seems like the last frontier if you know we weren't constantly seeing changes with land birds too. Uh, but yeah. these sort of proposals seem like very uncontroversial. There's, there's so much low-hanging fruit with seabirds. Are you familiar with this species pair? A little bit. Um, you know, I know I've seen lots of quarries offshore, um, off, you know, Gulf Coast and and off Massachusetts here. But I don't know that I have seen uh, uh, scopolis. I, I know I've, you know, mostly because you have to take a picture and then kind of look at the picture to know what you saw. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And 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 I've had, you know, I've seen individuals that supposedly are good for it, but I'm not too confident about putting that on my life list if this if this is split yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I've gone out in, in the Gulf Stream in North Carolina and they have scopolis, scopolis uh, yeah, every once in a while. I'd say it's probably like maybe one for every you know, 25 or 30 Corey Shearwaters that you yeah. see. And it's one of those situations where like once you've kind of pinned one down with photos, you kind of can, I don't know if it's like suggestive that you can sort of see the, 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 like the morphological differences, but um I don't know. It's yeah. interesting. I, I know that in talking to Brian Pattison and Kate out there, like there's a lot more variation in, in the nominate quarry and the, well, the, I guess the nominate is Scopolis. Uh, it's the, uh, Borealis, that's the what we call quarry shearwater. There's yes. a lot more variation yeah. in those Borealis birds than sometimes maybe people give them credit. But, you know, Steve Howell's been talking this split up. It was in his Seabird book that came out in 2012. So 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, there must be enough there that I mean, people have been talking about it for almost a decade now. Yes, I think there's a lot there. And and this is one where I'd be um, you know, opposite the old world, but I'd be very surprised if it didn't go through. Um, because in this case, the the data is kind of slam dunk in my opinion. They have yeah. there are there are islands in the Western Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. It makes it easy. I mean, they're very separate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they literally are in the same island. So you have clear a clear test of whether or not they're biologically separated. And and the data show that overwhelmingly they stay, that they mate only with each other. You know, there there are some a few mixed pairs that have occurred, but given the thousands of individuals, you know, that's a very rare occurrence. So seems to be a clear cut case of biological species staying reproductively separated. Okay, I don't want to say it's a sure thing because we said that last time. And, I know. Uh, some things know. turned out not to be, but uh, maybe as close as we can get in this packet. I yeah, I can't claim to understand how the committee might think anymore. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But I, yes, this one, this one to me, you know, the clear evidence of like in the field, you can watch them together. And so I, I would say we, we, we can count on uh, having a, a new lifer possible off the eastern seaboard. So, yeah, maybe we can get some, uh, some, you know, definitive ruling on the pronunciation of the name too. While we're yes, <laughs> I, I certainly have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of reorganization proposals every year. Um, most are pretty unconsequential. I, I was interested in the move to make changes to the New World grassland sparrows, uh, what we've always known as Amadromus. It, it pretty much breaks that genus up. Uh, yeah. It reminds me a lot of uh, a couple years ago when the AOS got rid of the warbler genus, Dendroica. Yeah. <laughs> what I found interesting is that one of the options to fix it was like to dump a lot of birds into the genus Passerculus, which currently just has Savannah Sparrow. Um, yes. What did you think about this one? So I, so the part of this proposal is to split off some members of Amdramus. So the grasshopper group, which is grasshopper sparrow and two things in South America. Um, it's, um, I can't remember, yellow browed and grassland sparrow. Grassland, yeah. They would stay in Amadramus, but they would be the only things in Amadramus now. And that part of the proposal is is quite well supported. You know, the phylogenies um, that have come out uh, uh, of of this group show that they clearly are their own little clade. Um, so I, I'm that will happen. Right, though Amadramus, the only thing left in North America in Amadramus is going to be grasshopper sparrow. Like I uh. am. 99% sure of that. Yeah, shed a, shed a tear um, for, yeah. for the larger Amadramus. <laughs> yes, but the other, yeah, so the other ones in the group, the marsh sparrows, so Leconte's, Seaside, Nelson's, salt marsh sparrows, and they're saying that they should go in their own genus, Amospiza, which has been used long ago, uh, because they also form a nice little clade. Like, they clearly are each other's closest relatives, separate from from Bairds and Henslows and all these other things. So you'll have two kind of either two neat groups involved, the Grasshopper Sparrow group, the Leconte's Nelson Sparrow group, and then everything else is a mess. So <laughs> the other two in the, you know, that are currently in Amdrams, Baird Sparrow and Henslow Sparrow, are not in a clade with, you know, the Leconte's Nelson's group. They're not in a clade with Grasshopper Sparrow. Some analyses show that they are each other's closest relative, Bairds and Henslows, but others show that they might not be. Like the support for that is kind of weak, and they're kind of in this 
messy group that includes uh, Melospiza, so song sparrow, uh, Xenospiza, <laughs> which is the Sierra Madre sparrow in Mexico, and uh, Pasterculus, so Savannah sparrow. What the proposal is saying is that because the relationships among those are not well supported, like that different analyses will give them different answers, they're saying just be conservative, put them all in one genus, and that genus should be Pasterculus because it was the first one described, basically. I'm not sure if the committee will go for that or not. They may keep Bairds and Henslows as each other's closest relatives and just put them in a, their own genus. Uh, that that's uh, it's hard to say which way they're going to go with that part of the proposal. That pasterculus that that runs the gamut from like chunky long-tailed sparrows like song to or svelte short-tailed sparrows like savannah. I mean that's like morphologically that's a stretch. Yes, and and you can see that in in the analyses that like they, there are there clearly are some groups you know like song sparrow is with swamp sparrow and Lincoln sparrow which you know makes sense morphologically and but then you know they're saying that that doesn't necessarily mean they should stay as a genus because you don't know exactly who's sister to that group and so it just yeah they're they're paid, they're just saying be conservative and yeah. It'd be weird to lose uh, Amadramas and uh, Melospiza in one go. Man, that's like a, yeah. a bloodbath of of historic <laughs> sparrow genera. Well, we'll keep we'll keep Amadramas. It'll just be one. It'll only be grasshopper sparrow. But yes, yes, we would lose. That's true. Yeah, Melospiza if if the full proposal kind of goes through. Right. So. right. But they are they did kind of break it up so that they can vote on kind of different there are a few options parts of yeah. this. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know which way they'll go with that, honestly. Um uh, part of their argument was that the there no one is planning to work on this group anymore in the near future. <laughs> so that they're basically saying we're not going to get a clearer picture. So stick to the conservative answer hmm. right now. I suppose that that's par for the course for the committee, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, this part of it, I really don't know what they're going to do. Finally, I wanted to get your thoughts on a non-genetic change, one that has you know, already been announced, the the common name change of Gray J to Canada J. I'm uh, curious what you think. I'm, I'm sort of of two minds about it, probably more fine than not, but uh, I'm curious as to what you think. Yeah. So, I, I mean, first, I was really surprised when the announcement came out before the publication yeah. of the, uh, the supplement, but... Um, I, I guess I maybe I understand a little bit about the whole aspect of it you know, having to do with the whole national bird thing. And I, I don't really fully understand that side of it. But but yeah, so they did approve the change. So it will now be Canada J instead of Gray J. And honestly, you know, having read the full proposal and everything, it makes sense to me. To me, they are correcting a change from Canada J to Gray J, like that never should have happened. Like the original common name for this thing was kind of Canada J. And then they stopped. That's a scientific name too. It's Canadensis. Yeah. The original reason for like not calling it Canada J was that then you would have subspecies common names right. that were like Oregon Canada J, which makes no sense. And but th- but then they, they didn't give common names to subspecies, so that conflict was no longer a thing. So there's no excuse to not call it Canada J anymore. So in my opinion, this really is kind of correcting what I th- I kind of agree with the proposal authors that this was a mistake that you know never should have been made, and and we're correcting it. The conflict I think just comes from the fact that this was something that happened so long ago that Gray J's be 
established for so long. But you know what? That's to me, that's not very good reason to not correct a mistake that shouldn't have been made. And, you know, the other side of it is, yeah, to me, you know, yeah, the canadensis is the name and, you know, the, the whole national bird thing to me is kind of cool. Like, I, you know, I don't know that the committee really cares about that or not. Who knows? But um, <laughs> from a technical standpoint, I think the committee is correcting something that shouldn't have happened in the first place. And, and I see nothing wrong with that. I do think it's sort of interesting now that, you know, there are two other birds in that genus both Asian, and they have right. place names as well, uh, Sejuan Jay and, and Siberian Jay. So, yeah. you know, if that yeah. matters, it, <laughs> now they all have three place names. Uh, you can yeah, exactly. kind of tie them together sure. a little better. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where like, yeah, for me, I'm thinking, yeah, well, you know, I know it is Gray Jay for so long, but hey, it's fine. Canada Jay is fine. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't have a problem with it at all. No, exactly. And then, you know, they, they made also a good case in the proposal about how it's not too dissimilar from the switch for Mexican Jay's name, like they, oh, right, and yeah. how that also didn't make sense. And so they corrected it. And that's a good point. I had thought about that. Yeah. People, people will get used to the new normal very quickly. <laughs> I did see my life for Canada Jay in Alaska though. I don't know if that, uh, yeah. And now I need to see <laughs> so, what Canada, so, I guess. So it was Alaska yeah. <laughs> Canada Jay. <laughs> Alaska Canada Jay. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, Thanks, Nick, for uh, shedding light on these taxonomic concerns once again. Uh, Nick is a biologist. He is a member of the or secretary of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee and a Twitterer at NLB Birder. I'll have you back again when the decisions are announced. Well, the rest of them, I guess. Okay, I look forward to it. Thanks again. Thanks, Nick. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast or any of the other resources the ABA provides, please consider becoming a member of the ABA. We can't do it without your help. If you're already a member, thank you, and please consider renewing your membership. We love being an organization that helps birders enjoy birding more and build a better birding community. Special shout out to Michael Humphrey of Dunmore, Pennsylvania, Corey Clark of Corpus Christi, Texas, Edward Griseta of Fairfield, Connecticut, and Chloe Goude, Goody, I'm sorry, Chloe, of Carborough, North Carolina, uh, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks for that, and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's been trying to convince us that the Shearwater should be pronounced Scoplies. It's like someone asking for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Technical production is by John Lowry, who's already cut Tiger Bean Goose out of all of his field guides, so AOS better lump them or he's in sort of a bind. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Nice. They say that if the AOS is going to lump Song and Savannah Sparrow in the same genus, just throw Fox in there too. Who's going to know? You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are inspired by the change to Canada J, and we are pursuing a similar change of Kirtland's Warbler to Kirkland's Warbler, perhaps with a corporate tie-in with Costco, because if we don't do it, autocorrect is going to do it anyway. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>